For those of you who weren't here uh, this morning, raise your hand real quick so I can see where you're at. Okay, great, great, great. I'm going to do just like real brief context of who I am. Um, my name is Drew Berryessa. Hi, everyone who's met me already. Um, I've been in ministry to men and women who have been leaving the LGBTQ community and identity for the last 22 years. Uh, I have a lot of a lot of uh, personal experience with this issue myself, having struggled with my own sexual orientation. And uh, everything that I teach, I've had to understand not only as a minister for the last quarter century, but as a person who has had to deal with these issues in my own life, and also as a person who has loved ones who are currently in the LGBTQ identity, one specifically, my identical twin brother. So when I talk about this stuff, this is stuff that I have fought to understand, and it is not theory, it is personal and applied, and everything that I preach, I practice. That being said, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about um, references some of the stuff we already talked about, so you'll want to go back and listen to those things in case some of this doesn't make sense. And depending on when y'all want to kick me out of here, I will try to do this quickly so that we can have more time for question and answer if, if that's possible. So if you have a question, hold on to it, and even if we end the time, you can come up and ask me and I'll answer it. That sound good? Okay. So uh, we are talking about sex. So if you're not comfortable with that, let's get comfortable real quick. Okay? That would be, weren't very convincing. Like, this is a relationship we have here today. Like, if you, you know, otherwise it's going to be weird. So let, why don't we talk about why it's weird. Can you all think back real quick? Uh, think back on your childhoods, on your history, and think back to when, um, when you may have first had the talk with your parents. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Can you all think back to that? Like, maybe some of you didn't have the talk. Maybe your parents completely avoided it. My wife, uh, her mother was sitting at a table with her, and she just put a book on the table, and she just sort of slid it over to her. That was the talk for my wife. She said it was a cartoon book, and the main character was named Suzanne, which is my wife's name, and she was like, super great. That was what she had. Uh, I've met people who basically um, a dad took him out to the barn and waited for the animals to mate and said, there you go. Um, that was the talk that he got. Um, so if you can think back, if you had the talk with your parents, was it helpful? Nope. Uh, was it traumatic? Yep, mine was. Mine was super traumatic. Uh, did it even happen at all? Probably no. Uh, one of the things that I've learned over the last 20 plus years in ministry is that not only do parents really not know how to have the conversation, but the church hasn't known how to have the conversation. I can sum up the grand total uh, theme of what I was taught in the church about sexuality in one word. Anyone want to guess it? Well, that's a good one. Um, don't. Yeah. But, you know, don't, sin, no. These are all equivalent words. Um, and normally that was taught like the one time per year, normally around Valentine's Day when they did the series on sex. Uh, because that's the only time you ever really need to talk about it, right? Is around Valentine's Day? Sure. So even with the best possible version of the talk, even if you had an idyllic conversation with a mom and a dad who sat down and they explained 
the birds and the bees, and it wasn't uncomfortable, which I don't know how it wouldn't have been, and, you know, comprehensive and good and not emotionally scarring, even if you had the best possible version of that 10, 15, 20 years ago, that talk would be wildly insufficient for the culture we're in now and what our kids are facing. You know, I have three kids, three daughters, 16, 14, and nine going on 45. And when my oldest daughter entered seventh grade, she was facing things in just her peer group, things that were being said and talked about and experienced that I couldn't have ever imagined as a junior in college. That's seventh grade for my daughter. And when she came home talking about some of these things that she was facing, you know, I've been in this in this field for 20 plus years. I've studied just about everything there is to know about this. I felt ill-prepared to answer her questions. So if I felt not prepared for that, I figure most of you all are just in a creek, in a boat down a specific creek without a specific paddle. Um, so that kind of motivated me to want to develop what I call Beyond the Talk. And I divided into sections, and this first part is called Beyond the Birds and the Bees, because we simply, it doesn't work to have just the birds and bees conversation, because it's not sufficient. But before we get there, why are conversations about sexuality so difficult and so uncomfortable? I think one of the first reasons why is it feels exposing. It feels too intimate. It feels uncovering. And we've been taught either about sexuality that it's off limits or that it's whatever you want. Like, it, it's either feast or famine in our culture. And that, that's not an easy place to balance when we're trying to have a life-giving, good, helpful conversation about this. And I think another reason why is, is, you know, when I first realized that my parents had to have sex for me to exist, that was a little awful to remember, to, to realize, like, you know? <laughs> and then I, in my head, I was certain, well, they only did this twice. Like, because, you know, I have a brother and I have a twin brother, so just twice. They only did that twice. They should never do that more than twice. And then I realized, the day that I realized that it wasn't just a functional exercise, but they did it for recreation as well. <laughs> you know? That was also traumatizing. You know, I, by that I mean that our, my family didn't talk about anything. And in my wife's family, some, like some family cultures, public displays of affection between the parents weren't even okay. Like, to this day, my mother-in-law, every time my father-in-law tries to give her a kiss on the cheek, she's like, oh, stop, stop, stop. You know, if it's in front of people, she, she reacts like, don't touch me. And it's like, that's not healthy. And that's not presenting a good model for her kids as they walk into life and have to deal with their own sexuality. Um, I think another reason why this conversation can be really hard for people is we feel uneducated and we feel set up to fail in it because we haven't been equipped by our parents and the church, and I'm not trying to throw stones at the church, I'm just making an observation. The church hasn't equipped us and that's because church leaders haven't been equipped. In most Bible colleges and seminaries around this country, not a single hour of training is given to the topic of human sexuality. And most pastors will tell you that it's one of the biggest issues they're facing in their congregations or the consequences of that, and yet they are not prepared. They are more prepared to give you a 400-hour talk on premillennial, premillennial dispensationalism, which I don't know what that is. I don't care what that is. I have a sexuality I have to deal with every day. 
And so it's an out-of-balance training for the real work of pastoral care. That pastors haven't been equipped, and so they don't equip because they haven't been equipped. That makes sense? Pastor, does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I think another reason why is us as parents, we haven't been really been given a good model in our parents' relationships. So many of us come from families that are different colors of dysfunction. And when we see how our parents are interaction, uh, interacting, we don't want to give that model to our children. And so we can't give to our kids what we weren't given, and we don't want to give to our kids something that was dysfunctional that we were given. And so we're left kind of in the weeds trying to figure out how do we do this better with no information, awkward feelings, and a culture that is moving at warp speed, changing the, the conversation on sexuality all the time. Another reason why is nothing shuts down a conversation like feeling like you're going to fail. How many of you want to walk into conversations where you feel like you're going to fail from the beginning? No, I didn't. I didn't. I mean, me? No. No. Nobody. One more reason is we feel ashamed sometimes of our own story. Maybe because of sexual history that we've had that we're not proud of. When trying to set a model that's healthy or a goal for our kids, we feel like hypocrites trying to set a model we weren't able to attain. Sometimes we have a skewed perception of what normal or healthy is. Because again, trying to find a model that's healthy without anyone talking about it and everyone ill-equipped, normally the models that we're looking at don't feel like something we want to give to our kids either. I think sometimes we view sexuality through the lens of sin and shame and not a life-giving theology. Let me tell you something about that. As a pastor, uh, my wife and I do premarital counseling for people all the time. And we do, you know, a lot of people that are walking into premarital counseling have sexual histories before they're getting married. And it's, we have to deal with that. But every once in a while we run into what we call the unicorn couple. Pure as the driven snow walking into marriage. Not a single blemish or stain have maintained their purity, have maintained their integrity, have never seen anything, have never done anything. They are virginal walking into the marriage, and you would think that that kind of couple could walk into marriage, could walk into their honeymoon, and feel really good about what they're about to experience, but almost every single time we get phone calls the day after the wedding, and these couples saying, why do we feel so dirty and ashamed of what we just did? And the reason for that is because so often in the church we talk about sexuality only through the lens of sin and brokenness and behavior and the message is don't, 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 go enjoy. And how do you overcome years of avoiding something afraid that you're going to defile yourself and then in a switch of a flip, flip of a switch, did that wrong, um, you're suddenly supposed to enjoy this and feel good about it. It doesn't work like that. Not only that, when we walk into the conversation of sexuality and we know we have to address things that maybe we, we are uncomfortable with or we know might be pitfalls for our kids, we worry, are we going to implant ideas in their head that then they're going to go try to explore and find out? Are we going to defile them by the conversation? We get afraid of bringing things up that are necessary to talk about because we don't want to defile our kids or give them an idea that they, we don't want them to have yet. Are these all resonating with you guys? Okay. And another reason why is a lot of us are coming to the table with sexual trauma. Sex not only is a confusing thing and a thing we don't feel equipped to address, we have 
pain and trauma associated with it ourselves. We shared earlier today in the question and answer time that the national statistics are one in four and one in five, one in four girls and one in five guys are going to be experiencing sexual molestation or defilement by the time they're 12 years old. And I believe those statistics are too low. In my experience in pastoral care and just watching culture, it wasn't until the last couple of years that uh, the Me Too movement was happening and a lot more women were actually beginning to share what happened to them, to their themselves in their childhood. Last night I was sharing at a youth rally in Scapoos and after the youth rally, a young girl came up to me and she asked if she could talk with me in private. And so we sat off in the corner and she confessed to me that she had been sexually assaulted four times already in her life. She was 14 years old and she had not told her parents about any of it because she was worried her parents were going to view her as damaged. I don't think these statistics are accurate. I think there are a lot more people who are experiencing sexual violation, sexual abuse, sexual defilement than what is being reported. And I shared earlier today that guys are not allowed culturally to understand that their sexuality is valuable because they're told, whatever you do, you know, boys will be boys, boys experiment, go and sow your wild oats, you know, go sleep around, locker room talk. Guys are celebrated for their sexual conquest. Even in the church, guys are celebrated in passive ways of their conquests, and girls are shamed for them. So guys don't really have a narrative culturally to be able to identify when they've been defiled because it's common and expected for defilement to happen to men. Another reason why we don't approach this topic well is we believe that it's someone else's job to talk to our kids about sex. We either let the schools do it and try to follow up and fill in the blanks or correct errors or we wait for the youth pastor or the pastor to do it the once a year that they, the unequipped, are going to go try and talk to our kids about sex. All of this is not going to work for us anymore. We can no longer, as the church, wait for someone else. We can't leave the vacuum empty. Because when we are not having conversations with our kids, with our congregations, with our people about sex, the world and the culture is perpetually having conversations with our kids and, and us about sex, its meaning, and its purpose. So we really have to begin to do better than that. And another concept that I think is really important that maybe we don't understand or haven't seen, the arguments or the positions that the church has often taken in, in the realm of sexuality are often in response to something the world is saying. So the church is known more for what it's against than what it's for. And the culture is constantly giving all of us arguments of what sex is for and what we can pursue in it. And the church is saying don't, and the, the world is saying yes. So let me ask you a rhetorical question. If, and this is not going to, and I need you to respond, okay? This is the deal we're going to make today. If I ask a question, you have to respond, okay? Thank you. You, you did it. Yay. I want us to imagine in this concept, what if everyone in the world began saying that fast food was actually healthy and nutritious? Except for like one voice that was saying, no, you must eat vegan to live. What food would you be compelled to eat? 
Right. Because the, the, the message of this is actually good for you. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Don't eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it. Eat it, eat it, eat it. You're like, yes, golden arches, sign me up. And the reason for that is the argument for something is always stronger than the argument against. Pursuit is actually stronger than resistance. Have you ever struggled with an issue in your life, a, a habit that you want to break, or a, um, a sin struggle, or something that you have given a lot of attention and effort towards, and then you've decided, I can't do this anymore, so I have to do something else, or... Or maybe you just say, I don't want to do that anymore. So you try not to do the thing, but you feel pulled into the thing all the time. Anyone? Okay. What if instead of trying to not do the thing, you started doing something different? You started pursuing something different? Yeah, you break the habit because pursuit is stronger than resistance. Because we can't actually stop something and have it stop and not replace it with something else. We have to displace it. We have to replace something and not leave it empty because a vacuum won't stay empty. And if we don't know what to replace the message of the world with, we're just trying to resist it and say no, but it's going to get filled up every single time with the message for the affirmative because we're not replacing it with something to pursue. Make sense? Okay. So... We crave meaning as human beings. We need to understand the purpose and the meaning for things. Let me ask you guys something. Um, when you, if you were parents, and you told your child to do something that they didn't want to do, what was normally their response back to you? Why? And then, we'll, let's say you're a good parent, and you say, hey, hon, I need you to go clean your room. And they say, why? Well, because your room is a mess. And I need you to clean it up. Well, but why? Well, because I want to gag every time I walk by it. So I need you to clean up your room. But why? Well, we have company coming, and I'm ashamed of your room. I feel like a bad father. Well, but why? Well, because I said so. Go clean your room. How many of you have ever reverted to because I said so as a parent? Okay. Some of you have not raised your hand in this room, and I can see that you're parents. And I just want to let you know Jesus is watching. So <laughs> let, let's be honest. How many of us have said, because I said so? Okay. That doesn't satisfy the human heart, but it's kind of the message the church has given on sexuality, because the Bible said so. God said so. One man, one woman. Why? Because he said so. Sex only in marriage. Why? Because the Bible said so. Porn is bad. Why? Because he said so. That's not enough for... For young adults, that's not enough for teenagers. That's not enough for us as human beings. It works a little bit with children. And we talked earlier today about this difference between a precept and a principle. Kids need precepts. They need black and white boundaries. Uh, outside of the realm of sex, if you have a five-year-old kid playing in the front yard and there's a busy street in front of your front yard, you don't say, now, sweetheart, let's talk about the consequences of if you cross the boundary from the grass to the concrete. Let's talk about what might happen if a car was driving at a certain speed and the velocity and the direction makes it impossible for them to stop before you get squished. No, you're not going to have that conversation. You say, don't go in the street. Why? Because I don't want you to die. Don't go in the street. Don't go in the street. Don't swim in the pool when no one's there. Don't do this. Don't do that. You set boundaries. And normally kids 
because they don't have cognitive reasoning that can go through abstract thought or cause and effect or logic. They just need the boundaries. They might say why, but then you might explain it, but they don't understand the explanation, which is why they say why again, because they can't conceptualize everything that we're trying to say because we're trying to over-explain things at a young age. So we need to get to concrete things to say, well, don't do this. Why? Because it's not good for you, and I said no. Okay? Okay, move on. But that's still the level of conversation we're having about sexuality, is in the precept level. And because precepts do not satisfy the human hunger for meaning, the world has been able to supplant meaning in sexuality in 9,000 different ways, which is wildly more appealing to all of us than just don't. Let me give you an example of how this works and why this is where we are today. This is, a, I'm pulling out the big, the big guns. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. Y'all ready for some intellectual thought? He writes this, There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human individuals drift apart from one another or else collide with one another and do another damage by cheating and bullying. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual, when the different parts of him, his different faculties and desires and so on, either drift apart or interfere with one another. You can get the idea plain if you think of a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in one another's way, and secondly, if each ship is seaworthy, has her engine in good order, and can steer correctly. As a matter of fact, you can't have either of these two things without the other. If, for example, the steering gears are out of control in order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. True enough. If the ships keep on having collisions, they won't remain seaworthy for very long. You can't have one without the other. Or, if you like, think of it as humanity as a band playing a tune. To get a good result, you need two things. Each player's individual instrument must be in tune, and also, each must come in at the right moment together to combine with all the others. Make sense? But there's one thing that we've not yet taken into account. We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to, or what type of music the band is trying to play. The instruments might all be in tune and might all come in at the right moment, but even so, the performance would not be a success if they had been engaged to provide dance music and actually played nothing but dead funeral marches. And however well the ships in the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York and instead arrived at Calcutta. Make sense? Morality, then, seems to be concerned with three things. First, the fair play and harmony between individuals. Second, what might be called tidying up or harmonizing things inside each individual. And third, the general purpose of human life as a whole. What was mad man made for? What course the whole fleet ought to be on? And what tune the conductor of the band wants to play? Summing this up, you might look at it this way. How to keep ships from running into one another is called a social ethic. How to keep your ship from sinking individually is a personal ethic. Why are we out on the sea anyway? That is called the essential ethic. The church has done a good job-ish teaching the social and the personal ethic. We've taught about consequences of sexuality. We've talked about the rules of sexuality. We've talked about the values or the scriptures that tell us what to do with our sexuality. But we have not explored and looked for the meaning 
why? Why is sex only supposed to be in marriage? Why is it important that there's male and female? Why? What is the meaning? What is the point? Because if we don't have meaning, we leave that gap in our understanding and we start instead descending into legalism and behavioralism. And legalism and behavioralism without a purpose or a point behind it is dead. It's empty and it's lifeless. And we still want to know why and nobody is answering. One of my favorite theologians, A.W. Tozer, wrote this. Each generation must look to its beliefs. While truth itself is unchanging, the minds of men are porous vessels out of which truth can leak and into which error may seep to dilute the truth they contain. All a man or a church or a denomination needs to do to guarantee deterioration of a doctrine or a belief is to take it for granted and do nothing. The unattended garden will soon be overrun with weeds. The heart that fails to cultivate truth and root out error will shortly be a theological wilderness. The church or denomination that grows careless on the highway of truth will before too long find itself astray, bogged down in some mud flat from which there is no escape. When it comes to sexuality, we really haven't done anything other than the behavioral. And the weeds and the muck and the dilution of culture is seeping in to our understanding of sexuality, even into how we perceive the meaning behind the rules and how we establish rules or a culture. I'm going to demonstrate this by asking anyone 25 and older, or maybe 30 and older. Well, I'll, I'll know by the shudder. How many of you know these words when I put them together? True, uh, let's see, true love waits. How about I kiss dating goodbye? How about the words promise ring? Okay, I love that. Oh, is what I heard the noise back there. Okay. On their own, in their own merit, there's nothing wrong and actually very good things about saying, I want to wait till marriage. On its own, there's nothing wrong with courtship. There's nothing, and there's good things about courtship. There's, there's good things about establishing rules and boundaries for dating, and there's really good things about um, understanding that purity is important. But if we don't understand why, then these things start becoming rules that are left to the interpretation of the individual or the culture to establish the meaning behind it. So I'll give you an example of some purity culture tenets of belief that are just diluted and wrong because there hasn't been meaning attached to them. So first and foremost, what a definition of purity is. So purity culture often referred back to your virginity. Remain a virgin until you're married. But what qualifies you as a virgin? I've been speaking with youth camps and youth culture now for 25 years on the topic of sexuality, and more and more, uh, I'm kind of astonished at what culture thinks virginity is. It, it'll, it'll happen every time where a kid in a youth group will raise their hand and say, well, how far can I go? 
and still be pure. And I'm like, well, you're not. You've, you've exposed yourself, not literally, but exposed yourself for not being pure right now. Because that question is saying, what can I get away with? And if you're saying, what can I get away with? That's a problem. That's, that's, that's a problem. And then I have kids that are like, oh, no, I'm still a virgin. I've only had oral sex. Was the word sex in what you did? If it was, let's just challenge that notion of purity. Um, the, really, honestly, in youth culture, it comes down to this one thing. Unless a penis enters a vagina, you're a virgin. Which, so that we understand it, means that every homosexual person is a virgin. I didn't realize I was so sexually pure when I got married. My history meant nothing. Pure as the dirt and snow. But that's one of the purity culture lies that, without meaning, has let error and wilderness come into our minds and come into our, our thought process of what purity is. Now, Jesus addressed this issue when he said, you know, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And so that we understand that he wasn't doing a prescription here. He was laying down a precept, not a precept, sorry, a, a principle that said that the, actually your, your most effective sexual organ is your brain. If you are entertaining lust, whether you're a man or a woman, you're already premeditating an action that your heart has violated purity. So purity culture has to go way beyond behavioralism, and it has to go to your heart. If we're truly going to be pure, it starts in our heart. Another pure purity culture rule is, I am pure if I follow all the rules, and if I follow all the rules, I'll be rewarded with a fulfilling marriage and an outstanding sex life. How'd that work out for everyone? Was, you know, everyone nope, 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 nope. It's a lie. And it's one that, that disillusions people radically. And I've actually seen marriages fall apart because they remained pure and then because things didn't work out exactly how they thought it would. Because, you know, you're not the raging stallion you thought you would be and there's not a lot of satisfaction in the physical relationship. Accusation and disappointment settles in and it erodes the marriage. On the flip side of that, if I don't, remain completely pure, marriage and sex will be diminished at best and irreparably damaged at worst. And what this does is that makes your body a commodity. Saying, well, it would have been nice if you could buy the brand new car with the warranty, but instead you got the jalopy off the lot that's been used a lot, and so it's not as valuable. So people are entering into marriage not understanding that they're still a good gift even if they made a mistake. Because what they did with their bodies now makes them less valuable. Make sense? It's a lie. Another lie. I need to white-knuckle it and avoid intercourse before marriage or else I have less value. In our church, growing up with purity culture, there were a number of, of, uh, of couples that crossed some lines. And because they felt like they had less value because of that, they looked at the person they crossed lines with who they weren't in love with. It was really just lust that drove them to this. And they thought, well, I'm not valuable for anybody else, but since we're both diminished in value, let's get married because we deserve each other. Those marriages did not work out. 
Another lie. Purity is more important for women than it is for men. And women are responsible for the purity of men. Gigantic lie. Gigantic lie. Now, again, I said this morning when I, I think I brought this up, um, we see very good, good, godly people having boundaries in their life and ministry. Billy Graham had a lot of boundaries in his life and ministry that he wouldn't even be in an elevator with a woman alone. And in, in one respect, I understand and I respect his personal integrity, but in another respect, I want to ask the question, Billy Graham, why weren't you taught how to discipline your mind that you couldn't be left in an elevator with a woman without, what, lusting after her? Or being worried that you would make a bad choice? That's not a necessarily a reflection on Billy Graham as much as it is a, on Christianity that we have not cultivated an understanding of self-control and purity in our mind and purity in our heart. Now, again, I'm not saying this is everybody, but it's so culturally normal for, you know, avoid the mere appearance of evil to a man and a woman talking together. That's evil. Why? Because what? They're going to jump in a closet and have... What, what is this? Where is our self-control? Where is the discipline that we aren't objectifying people at every other turn? You get what I'm saying here? And where is it, and what are we telling our daughters when we tell them, oh, no, no, cover up more because you don't want to cause a guy to stumble with, you know, your knee showing. You know, it's like women have to apologize for being pretty. And this plays into this Gnostic heresy that, that is in our culture that um, is this Gnostic dualism that the body is bad, but for men, because the body is bad, what you do with your body doesn't matter. But for women, because your body is bad, if your body causes me to stumble, you're a slut. So this is a heresy that has found its way into purity culture. Fantastic. So this has been in the church for years and 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 years. So one of the primary contributors to our church doctrine uh, back, way back, uh, you're here, St. Augustine. Anyone? Okay, St. Augustine was a church father that contributed to the doctrine of original sin. He gave us this understanding that we are born with a sin nature. Well, that was good. But... St. Augustine, before he was saintly, was a sex addict. And he had a very interesting view of sexuality. He believed that original sin was passed to the next generation through sex. That every act of sex was sinful, even in marriage. Which is why the Catholic Church established the need for celibacy for their priests. Because their priests couldn't be sinful. And why the church calendar actually had days where married couples were allowed to have intercourse and be forgiven for the sin of having sex. It was Wednesday, hump day. I'm just kidding. I couldn't resist that. I really couldn't. I needed us all to laugh a little bit. So, but, but this doctrine and this belief system has filtered its way down from St. Augustine to us today. Like, it is, it is that Gnostic dualism that views the body as bad and sex as bad. And 
I'm going to tell you this right now. We're going to get to it in just a moment. The idea that sexuality is bad is robbing us of one of the most beautiful theological truths that there is in the scriptures. In this whole thing, um, when we're talking about purity culture and we're talking about how all sin is bad and awful and sinful and horrible, what then do we do when someone has been sexually violated against their will and now they're believing that they're worse because of a choice they didn't make for themselves? Because when we perpetuate some of these ideas, the kid who didn't ask to be sexually violated now has to contend with not only that they were violated, but now they intrinsically feel like they have less value because their body is a commodity that's been damaged. I do a lot of pastoral counseling and a couple of examples of how this is just completely devastating to people. There was a young man that I was counseling a couple of years back. He's about 22 years old and had worked for years just to maintain his purity, which was very admirable. And he had some good motivation behind it. That He was like, I don't need the junk of, of a sexual history when eventually I get married. I don't want memories of pornography or of you know sex with random people in my head. I want that only for my future wife. Very good motivation. Much more uh, pure and healthy motivation than I just don't want to be damaged goods. It was looking at the possible consequence of sexual behavior rather than internally in our heart and our mind rather than viewing themselves as bad if he made a mistake. He just didn't want the consequences of it. But this kid was being mentored by a local youth pastor. And this local youth pastor was spending a lot of time with him individually. Then it was discovered that this youth pastor had sexually molested a couple boys. And then this 21-year-old man had to look at this relationship that he had with this youth pastor, and suddenly some of the things that this youth pastor did were cast in a very different light. And he began to feel completely defiled. Because this youth pastor was actually trying to groom him for sexual abuse. And I remember sitting in, a, in, a, in my office with this kid as he's weeping and saying, Drew, I've, I've tried so hard to remain sexually pure. I'm damaged now. I'm defiled. He didn't make any decision to do anything. But by virtue of what this other person was trying to do, he felt defiled. He said, what is my purity worth at this point? Gnosticism, this belief system infiltrated into his heart. Another example is we had a Christian recording artist who decided to come to our church to do a little concert, and he has decided recently that he wanted to get into the business of encouraging the church in healthy marriage and sexuality. I don't know what qualified him to do that. He was invited by our senior pastor. I was in the room. I was listening to him talk. I was getting more and more uncomfortable with what he was saying, and then he laid out his thesis statement. You know, marriage really is this. When you have sex, you're married. The moment you have sex, in God's eyes, you're married. I'm looking around the room of the people that I know that have counseled who have been raped, sexually molested, people who made mistakes when they didn't know, they were ignorant to God's law, and every one of them is standing there 
shell-shocked, trying to process, okay, then am I married to my dad who molested me? Am I married to the rapist? Am I married to the person who XYZ, whatever it is? Again, this behavioralistic ethic of sexuality that robs the meaning of sexuality and supplants something else is damaging us profoundly in the body of Christ. Our value, our worth, can never be tied to our behavior. Whether we succeed or fail in this life to remain pure in our behavior, that does not establish our value. The Lord establishes our value. The fact that we are created in His image, and whether or not we make some mistakes with our body, does not diminish our value. What's been done to us does not diminish our value. What we've done in rebellion does not diminish our value. Because our value is set by God, independent of our mistakes. We need a better ethic. We need a better purpose behind sexuality. To actually give any rules or behaviors that we dictate in precept, meaning, and purpose, and life. In order to do that, we're going to go back to the very beginning of the story. Genesis 1. If you have a Bible or a device that has ability to pull Scripture up, I'd encourage you to go to Genesis 1, verse 26. If you don't want to do that, you don't have to. I'm going to keep moving. Genesis 1, verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all of the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, starting at verse 18, The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them before the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Can we agree that God is the most intentional being in all of the cosmos? That he does everything on purpose for purpose? I think there are a few things that we have to stop and evaluate in these two scriptures. First and foremost. I'm going to do the, the last one first and the first one last. That's how I'm going to do First off, in, you, in the translation that I read, it says that the Lord said it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The word helper in the original Hebrew is the word azer. Azer 
refers to, to woman in this passage refers to the helper that God is going to create. Almost every other time this word is used in Scripture, it refers to God himself or the Holy Spirit. We have often translated helper as servant, as weaker. I don't think we can accurately do that if every other time it is used, it's referring to God. Women, if you've ever been told you're less than, God didn't say it. Rib. The word rib in the Hebrew. Only time it's translated as rib. Every other time that this word is used in Scripture, it's referring to a side or half. And normally, of architecture that is sacred. Think the temple. Think the Ark of the Covenant. Every other time. Literally, if we were to let the Bible interpret itself, we could reread this passage accurately like this. The Lord God said is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a companion pretty much like me. Sounds better, right? A little bit more oomph to this helper. Then the Lord took one half of the man and formed woman. You go back to Genesis 1, it says, let us make man in our image, or mankind in our image. It is the word Adam. It rightly uh, translates it mankind here, but it also translated as man singular later. The inference in this passage is that the original creation of man had too much there. He needed to be divided and separated out. And the two halves, male and female, two halves of a complete picture of the image of God. You're getting the equal value here. Let's go deeper. God is the most intentional being in all the cosmos. And God likes to teach us in parable. He likes to teach us. And parable means this, a simple story to illustrate a moral or spiritual lesson. Great, that's a parable. That might be like a precept. Precept is black and white. Parable is kind of simple. There's another word that is very similar, but in church history, we've kind of polluted the word to mean a few things that it doesn't mean or never was meant to mean. And that word is sacrament. Sacrament, in, in current context of the church, the Protestant church generally has two sacraments, baptism and communion. The Catholic church is like 9,000. I don't even know what they all are. But sacrament has, has often been, been kind of hijacked to mean ritual or symbol. But what sacrament actually means in its correct definition is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritually divine truth. It is something that we are given here and now that is visible and tangible to understand a divine reality that is more real than the thing that we've been given. to give revelation to something that we can't see. So that we know what revelation actually means is a surprising and previously unknown fact, especially one that is made known in a dramatic way. 
or a divine or supernatural disclosure to humans of something relating to human existence or of the world? What if our bodies are sacraments? What if the very gendered nature of our bodies are sacramental, meant to show us the image of God? Now, God does not have a body. God the Father was spirit. Jesus existed in spirit back then. He wasn't incarnate yet. So we are not going to sit here and say, well, God has a penis and a vagina. That was, nope, 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 nope. But what we can say is, what if our bodies and the way our bodies are built are trying to show us the shape of God's soul and personality, something about his image that way? And that men and women uniquely reveal aspects and attributes of God in the way that they were made and in the way that we are motivated. And the shape of our soul and the shape of our body reveals something about the nature of God. So let's talk about the names or the words for male and female. This is going to be fun. Y'all with me so far, yeah? Okay. Well, the name, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar. Like, I'm going to pronounce these things, but I'm going to pronounce them with a lot of authority, so you're going to believe I know what I'm saying. That's the key, really, just with authority. Just say things with authority and people believe it. So the, the word for male in Hebrew is zakar. Zakar can be translated a couple different ways. Zakar has been used to, to say remember, someone who remembers. But most of the time it means to pierce or one with a tip. The word for female is nekabah. Nekabah means board open, one who is perforated or hollow. Baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark do 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 baby shark do do. Do you get what this is showing? What is saying? Baby shark do 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 baby shark do do. Imagine if you were my kid, like the conversations we have about sexuality in our home. It's, there's this parable that's existing in this, and it's basically showing male, it's talking about the male anatomy, the gendered self of the male. It's talking about the gendered self of the female, but there's something about the way that these work together. <laughs> no pun intended. And pun intended. They do fit together. They complete an image, like a puzzle piece at a rudimentary level, but it, it, it reveals something else, something more powerful about this. This is meant to reveal something about the motivation of God's heart and the nature of how he exists. Now, if you're, not, if you're like, Drew, you're like off of the weeds here. Romans 1, 18 and 19. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, if it's true about the, 
the solar system and the planet and the trees and every, the, all creation that they reveal God's attributes, how much more true is it going to be about something that God said bears his image? Again, let's go back to this. One who has a tip, one who is hollowed, opened, hollow, perforated. And we know that this is referring to their gendered selves. And we know that the scripture says in Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united together with his wife in one flesh. We know that that act is the very first commandment that God gave to his creation, be fruitful and multiply. It was tied to sex. We also know that Paul brought us back right back to this in Ephesians 5 when he quoted Genesis 3. And he said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united together in one flesh with his wife. And he says, and I'm saying this refers to Christ and his church. So before we get into the physicality of this, let's just take a little stroll down the scripture lane and see how many times God refers to himself as the groom and how often we are referred to as his bride. Over and over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you see God the Father being referred to as the faithful husband to Israel, the faithless, adulterous bride. And over and over and over again, it says in Scripture, oh man, over and over again, Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God who of the whole earth he is called. Isaiah 62, 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband. Matthew 9:15. Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken from them, and they will fast, referring to himself. Revelation 19.7 Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. There is more and more and more. I'm not going to go into all of them in the interest of time, but there's more and more and more and more and more. Constantly. And in the middle of the scriptures, we have the Song of Solomon, which is a book all about sex and this union between a man and a woman, this bride that the man is pursuing. And it is written in allegory and poetry, and it makes no sense when you're reading it. I mean, honestly, your hair is like shorn sheep descending Mount Gilead. Hot. It's all about this union and this pursuit. And even near the end of it, you see the groom is coming for his bride, and the the dust of the chariots are rising up, and it, and it even describes it as looking like he's riding on the clouds. Where have we heard that before? Our sexuality, our gendered selves, there's so many more illustrations in Scripture. So many more. When Nicodemus was talking to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, you need to be born again. 
And Nicodemus said to him, um, how am I supposed to crawl up into my mama again? And how do you do that? And Jesus said, it's a parable, Nicodemus. It's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration. But it really wasn't. Because when we are in Christ, we know we are a new creation. We know that we are born again. And Second Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The inference in the original language, it actually says this, if any man is in Christ, there has been a new conception. And then it refers back to this, we are conformed more and more to the image of God from glory to glory. Well, that just looks like gestation, and that just looks like maturing into the full image, because you're born again, and you continue to grow into the life of Christ. I mentioned this morning, when... When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and he said, Your righteousness is like filthy rags, menstrual cloths, there's no life in you. It's evidence that there's no life implanted in you. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, what do we do? We receive him into our heart. And the life of Christ grows in us because we are pregnant with him. Because we are the bride and he is the groom. The very act of sex points to this reality. And later on in the scriptures, it talks about how God has implanted the divine seed in the life of Christ in us. The divine seed is actually translated the divine sperm. Why on earth, in the Old Testament, did Jesus ask, not Jesus, God ask his followers, the men of his people, to be identified through circumcision? Seems like a very odd way to check ID. Why? Why cut your, the foreskin of your penis off as a sign that you are faithful to God? I find it really interesting that the shedding of blood for the man on their genitals is something that God asked them to do. And then we see the counterpart, the Jewish tradition for brides when they were getting married. The show cloth. The cloth that was laid down when they consummated the marriage and they would hang that cloth out the window and there had better be blood on that cloth because, brace yourselves, we're talking about all this stuff, the hymen would be broken when she lost her virginity and blood would flow and that was the sign of her faithfulness and purity. Blood had to be shed by the male on his genitals to show his faithfulness and his fidelity to God and it was shown by the woman when she received the male Jesus shed his blood first for us. And we lay down our life for him when we receive him. Are you getting the themes yet? There's so much in scripture that points back to these realities that go right back to sexuality. When we are baptized, we go under the water and we come out of the water. What is we know that there's this is a commandment that is done? What is it symbolizing? Maybe a couple things. What is it What is it symbolizing? Well, we're passing from death into new life, right? So this is kind of like being symbol of us being born again. When a baby is born, what does it come out of? Water. The water's broken and it comes out. Communion. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And we eat that meal and we receive the body and the blood of Jesus into our body. Right? Symbolically. We're not Catholics. It's not transubstantiation here. It's symbolic. It's a parable. 
It's a sacrament. And we understand it. But we also miss some of it because the church has been so scared of the marital spousal analogy and tying sex to spirituality. That literally, in Ephesians 5, if we read Ephesians 5, looking at it through the lens of us the bride and Christ the bridegroom, what does a husband do? He lays down his life for his wife. Jesus was saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, my bride. Receive my life. There's so many things that point back to this. Let's bring up another one, ladies. You're going to appreciate this. The Proverbs 31 woman. This is not about the women in this room. This is about the bride of Christ. The Proverbs 31 woman is reflected of what the church should be, not an individual woman. Let that absorb for just a moment. You don't have to receive this, but I think you might want to. There's no woman on earth that can do all the things that the Proverbs 31 woman can do. And back when I was a kid, DC Talk was telling us to look for her. And I never understood as a kid why there wasn't a Proverbs 32 man. Like, where was the list of requirements for the man? But there was the Proverbs 31 woman. And it was awfully um, large list of expectations for one lady to do. This wasn't about one lady. This was about one bride. And if you read that proverb through the lens of the ministry of the church to this earth in service of our Lord, it is a whole different story. When Jesus was referring, when he was asked, and I brought this up on the sexual purity issues, when, when they asked Jesus about divorce and he asked them about adultery, and he said, if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. Do you know how often the concept of adultery is tied in the scriptures to idolatry? Because all idolatry is, is adultery with our husband. Because we are looking to a different source to give our affection and our time and our devotion to, and not our spouse. And Jesus says, if you've committed adultery in your heart, you're guilty. Jesus also said that there's only one reason, legitimate reason for divorce, and that's infidelity, adultery. And yes, it's a good principle for us in human marriage, but so often Jesus was saying things that actually were pointing right back our relationship with him. Basically saying that there would be only one instance in which he would ever, ever not have relationship with his bride. And that would be sexual infidelity. But we also know from his character, from the book of Hosea, that it wouldn't be him that would be leaving the marriage. Because Hosea went back every time. God commanded him to go back every time. Every time single time. And I recognize I'm beginning to walk into some theological areas here that the church at large wrestles with understanding and agreeing upon. I grew up Nazarene. I lost my salvation if I sneezed wrong. In the Baptist church, well, you, you're once saved, always saved, but if you backslide, maybe you weren't ever really saved. 
Or maybe you might be coming back, we just haven't seen it yet. I don't mean to trample on either of those two things. I don't think you can misplace your salvation, like, oopsie boom, where'd it go? No. But I also know and have experienced God to be incredibly gentle and loving, and He does not force love on anybody, because love that's forced is not love. And if we begin looking at Christ's relationship to his bride through the most consistent analogy in which he talks about it, even more than talking about us as his children, then we might begin to interpret that maybe a little bit more poetically and think, I'm never going to be cast away by God, but I might throw him away. Just something to think about. All of this points to a meaning and a purpose in sexuality that is far beyond rules. It's far beyond the distorted values and distorted ethics and purposes that the world is giving us. But you know what else it challenges a little bit? Some of the idolatry that seeped its way into the church. I'm going to say a few things and you're going to have to brace yourself. We have made marriage an idol. We have made marriage an idol. And the consequence of that is that every single, single person in the church has been made to feel like they are somehow missing out on the greatest experience of life because they're single and not married. And the reason we have elevated marriage as an idol is because as good Christians, we know the only place we are allowed to have sex is in marriage. And to have sex is the pinnacle experience of humanity. And when we do that, we start elevating romance over covenant. How many Christian marriages were fueled by romantic love that wasn't actually romantic love, it was lust. And lust has a shelf life. Once you get into marriage, fueled by lust, many counselors and therapists have observed a reality they call the seven-year itch. That after about seven years of marriage, that, that romantic lust kind of wears off. And because romance has been elevated to the ultimate goal, people start looking somewhere else. I love romantic love with my wife. I love the benefit that we get to have a wonderful sexual connection. It's a wonderful benefit to marriage. It's not the point. I love that I get to be married in this life, but I have a lot of friends that come from my history that look at how the church presents the ultimate expression of humanity in marriage, and their attractions have not changed. They still are dealing with homosexual attraction or a transgender identity or something, and they're trying to submit this to Jesus, but they cannot imagine a life where they can walk into marriage. And because the church has presented and honestly built so much of the life of the church around marriage and family, that they feel like an outclass, a second-class citizen, and not worthy. 
What was that? Yeah, single people don't want to walk into a church because they're going to be sent to the singles group, a.k.a. meat market. Because singleness is a problem. But yet, the Apostle Paul wrote about celibacy like it was actually much better than marriage. That was varsity. Marriage is junior varsity. But here's the deal. If marriage here and now and sex here and now are just sacramental, pointing to a greater reality, and that reality is our union with Christ as his bride, then every single person actually gets to experience the real thing and not just the parable. Every single person is married to Jesus if they're in relationship with him. He is the husband. We are the bride. And every single, single person, if they don't get to experience the sacrament here and now, they get to experience the real thing in heaven. Which, compared to eternity, this is a blip on the radar. We're going to be there in a minute, literally. And I want to even present this to you. If, perhaps, the bread and the wine of communion not only points to us receiving Jesus and points to his broken body for our salvation, it also points to a wedding feast that's coming. And if you can imagine a heavenly wedding feast, what might that look like? I'm going to tell you it's probably going to be a lot more satisfying than the crusty piece of saltine and Welch's grape juice that we get at church. Right? Right? What if sexual intimacy that we experience and sexual pleasure here and now is like that little piece of crusty bread and a little bit of grape juice compared to the intimacy and the joy and the pleasure that we, his bride, will experience when we are finally united with him. Would we really grieve not getting this in this life if we were taught that that is coming? I'm going to tell you right now, there are, there's, a, there's a ton of people that are going to be saved out of the gay community. And they're going to lay down their right to ever experiencing physical intimacy ever again. With no guarantee God will transform their lives to a point where they could experience physical intimacy here and now. We had better start getting on board with this reality that the union with Christ is going to be way better than anything we could experience here. And if that's the truth, maybe some of us who are not managing our own sexuality as well in our marriage and in our singleness can start applying that truth to ourselves too. Yeah? It's a heavy conversation, isn't it? Drew, calm down. Let's go to uh, another thing, because this is also a really big part of this. Male and female. Masculine and feminine. What is biblical masculinity and femininity? Because I'm going to tell you this right now, what the church has valued as masculine and what the church has valued as feminine is cultural, not biblical. And people like me who grew up a lot more sensitive and not interested in sports and you don't want to be in the house or the doghouse I might try to build you, you will die. That's a joke. Laugh somebody. Breathe. There's a lot of men and women who feel like failures in their gender because they don't fit the cultural mold of what masculine or feminine is. And Satan is ready to destroy every part of their masculinity or femininity and alter it forever. Not because they were built wrong, 
God built us on purpose, for purpose, every single one of us. But because the model we set up for them to either succeed or fail in, they don't fit. And so Satan and the world is giving them an option. Mutilate it. Biblical masculinity reflects Jesus because Jesus is always referred to as the husband. And we know that Jesus was incarnational. And what is the incarnation? It is the fact that God broke the barrier between heaven and earth and came down into the darkness and entered into the world to save us, to implant his life into us, his bride. Masculinity is incarnational. Masculinity remembers the covenant that it made. In Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and every other covenant that was made, Moses to to Noah to every covenant made, it remembers its resolve to bring us back in right relationship. And so it moves into our mess and into humanity to bring life and implant it into his bride. Incarnational nature. Masculinity is incarnational. Masculinity is not about what you do or how you do it. It's about why. Why do we do what we do? Femininity. The woman receives, the bride of Christ receives the life of Christ in her and nourishes it. And and cultivates life and connects life. The bride of Christ surrounds that life and brings it into fruition. This is one of the reasons why the, the Holy Spirit is referred to in feminine terms quite often. The counselor, the comforter. Femininity is more about that invitational nature of God. And if you want proof of that, look in Revelation when it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Drink and eat. Come. Those who are thirsty, come. We as the Bride of Christ, we're not very invitational right now. It's why hospitality was such a huge biblical value in the, in the Hebrew culture. It's one of the reasons why it's one of the sins of Sodom mentioned more consistently than the homosexual rape, inhospitality, lack of welcome. It is a crying shame that loneliness and despair are so common in our culture when us as the bride of Christ have been called to welcome people in and nourish them in the life of faith. It's heartbreaking to me that in my ministry, I would hear it over and over again that it was easier to get sex in the gay community than a hug at church. That's why it felt like such a violation for my family and my testimony when we were walking to go sit at a table and people made spread out so that there wasn't room for us at the table. Rejection is antithetical to what we are supposed to be, and yet we are kicking people out and keeping them out all the time rather than inviting them in to nourish them into the life of Christ. Femininity is invitational in nature. 
And it's not what you do, and it's not how you do. It's why you do what you do. Let me give you a couple examples of, of how this works. Has anyone ever seen the little clip, the show, um, It's Not About the Nail? There's this little clip, this little, this little scene between a man and a wife. And you see them from behind, and the wife is sitting there talking, she's like, oh, it's just, there's this constant pain, and it's throbbing all the time, and it's just, I, it's just always there. And I just, I just never know, is it always going to be here? I mean, is it ever going to go away? And she turns her head, and there's a nail in her forehead. And the husband's just looking at her. Um, well, I think, did you know that you have a nail? And the wife goes, it's not about the nail. He goes, ah, I think that it is. I think if you took the nail out, you would feel like, were you always trying to fix me? Can you just listen? Anyone relating to that a little bit? A little bit? And the husband goes, okay. And she goes, I mean, I just, I mean, it's like a dull ache. My sweaters are all snagged. And he comes looking at her, he's like, that must be hard. She's like, thank you. And she leans in to kiss, and they, the nail bumps his forehead. He's like, ow! And she's like, don't! <laughs> the, even developmentally, women are way more concerned about connection. They're more concerned about about the relational dynamics that are happening and the interconnectedness of those relationships. Men typically are way more concerned about going and solving the problem. Doing something about it. Not just connecting about it, but doing something about it. Does this make sense? Again, this is about the motivation that is displayed in, in our sexual drive connectedness going and doing. You see this? That our bodies are a parable for the shape of our soul. Masculinity and femininity are so much more about why we do what we do and not what we do. Which means that I, as a man who loves to cook and is very hospitable in my home, the reason I do this is not for relational connection. The reason I do this is to do something for people that I care about. But when my wife does things that are very different than me and look maybe sometimes a little bit more traditionally masculine, it's about the connection with people. There's two women in my church, and I'm going so much later than I should be. Are we okay? You're like, Drew, I'm tired. I'm the guest speaker. I get to leave when I'm done. So, I mean, I'll just flee. Uh, I won't go too much longer. But there's these two women in our church back home in Medford, Oregon. Lou and Chantel. Lou was the first person in Oregon to open a CrossFit gym. She is very strong. She was a, a star college soccer player. She is, her guns are like scary. She's strong. She has a degree in kinesiology and exercise science. She's a beast. Her best friend Chantel is a third degree black belt who trained with Chuck Norris. 
Literally, she has him on speed dial on her phone. I walked into a, a time where she was talking on the phone. I was like, hey, Chantal. She's like, okay, bye, Chuck. And I said, I have to know. What was that, Chuck Norris? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, ah, Chuck Norris, Walker, Texas Ranger. The two of them have opened up this gym in our, in our um, city for women. They call it Drop Gym. And they have studied so much in their, in, their, in their practice in their gym. They recognize they have these passions and these skills for exercise and science and health and all these things, but they also have a deep passion for Jesus and a deep passion for discipleship and a deep passion to see women healed of the trauma and the pain that women experience in this world. And so they began studying how to use their bodies and exercise their bodies and make their bodies work towards healing of trauma. Because we are interconnected beings. We are holistic. When we experience emotional trauma, it affects our bodies. And pain and memory and, and spiritual wounds can be stored in our body and affect the way we move, our posture, our muscles, our nerves, all of it. Because we are wonderfully and fearfully made. And even the way that we breathe can affect the way that we are functioning. That when we breathe through our nostrils, it activates our vagus nerve that goes from our brainstem down to our feet, and it pushes our body into a place of peace and digestion and rest. If we breathe through our mouth, it triggers our amygdala, which is fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. So they decided in exercise, they didn't want any of their women ever to be pushing themselves to the point where they couldn't breathe through their nose in exercise. Because what happens when you're in that state of fight, fight, freeze, fawn is cortisol is running through your body, and cortisol makes you not burn fat. So all these women are busting their butts all day long trying to meet this goal of being healthier or prettier or whatever, and they're not, ex they're not succeeding because their body is working against them because they're breathing through their mouths. So they decided they're going to change everything, and they're only going to push to the point where you can control your breath through your nose. And then they started learning about all these other benefits that happen when you breathe through your nose and when you activate certain muscles and then when you lay on certain, you, I mean, crazy situations that they are combining and teaching women about how God made them and unabashedly talking about how the Creator has made them good. And woman after woman after woman is giving their lives to Jesus in this gym because they are using their passions in a field that is not typically female or feminine to invite women in and connect them with Jesus. Now, if I owned a gym, which I was never going to own a gym, but if I were to own a gym, I'd be like, let's kill some things. You know, I, I would want to go do something. It would be about achieving a goal, not about connecting. They're doing this beastly thing, and it's all about connection very feminine. Well, it doesn't look culturally feminine. Does that make sense? Ultimately, I mean, I could talk for a couple more hours just on this issue, just on all the things in Scripture that point to this reality, but I'm going to have to sum it up in a thesis where Pastor Dave's going to get up here and chuck me off the stage. sexuality is meant to reveal the nature of God. Every aspect of our sexuality is meant to display who He is. 
his relationship with his beloved bride and our relationship with him. Everything that we do with our bodies, everything that we do in our marriage, every aspect, every way that we commit our lives as single people to the Lord, even the commandment to go and make disciples of all men is the parallel new spiritual reality of the first commandment in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. It's all meant to reveal Jesus. And so when we say, why do we stay pure? It's not because you're going to be less valuable. No. Your groom has already demonstrated over and over again that no matter how many times you fail, he will always, always welcome you back. You're not any less valuable with the mistake that you make. So it's not about that. But why, why then do we remain pure? We remain pure because this connection with God is so valuable and so worthy of our devotion that why would we ever want to stray? Our marriages are meant to reflect a, a better image, a, a more complete image of God. That when a man and a woman are together, it reveals something that displays two halves of the picture of who God is as a complete view, which is why a man and a man will never do it. And why a woman and a woman will never do it. And why three women and a man will never do it. Because it is meant to reflect two halves of the divine image. It's all about disclosing his nature and revealing his character to the world. Purpose is not about us. It's not about our own gratification. Although when we believe this and we submit to it and we live within it, it is the most gratifying thing. It's why a husband lays down his life for his wife. Jesus laid down his life for the church. And why the church submits and lays down her life for him. That's the purpose. And it's far better and far more beautiful than we could ever imagine. And everything that we experience here and now is only pointing us to a reality that we will experience someday that will far outweigh any pleasure or any goodness that we get here. Amen. I encourage you to go to the Word of God and test everything that I said. Dig into every scripture that speaks about the bride and the bridegroom. Every single reference in the prophetic writings of Isaiah where it talks about the priestly garments or Isaiah 61 where it says, I will clothe you like a, a bride and like a bridegroom. Every marital analogy in the scriptures, look at them and ask the Lord to reveal the beauty of what he's saying to us. Ultimately, God has not hidden it at all. We just haven't been looking. The word of God says, seek, and you'll find. Amen? All right. Drew's done. Thanks for having Drew up in, the, in, the, in this place. I'll pray for you. All right. Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for 
these people, these brothers and sisters in Christ who have come, who have given their afternoon and then some to listen to this. Father, I pray that, that you will make this incredibly fruitful in our, in our walk with you as we understand and see how very devoted you have been to us, your bride. How very much you have pursued us. Father God, in light of that incredible love, may we start seeing it powerfully and amazingly in the things that we maybe didn't see it before. Lord, may we be completely overwhelmed by the actual romance, the one that matters, your love for us and our love back to you. Lord, refine us, purify us, grow us into deeper understanding and maturity, and help us incarnate this teaching so that we can begin to impart it to our kids and offer it as good news for anyone who has bought the substitute or the false and have found that it is no longer satisfying their souls. Lord, help us accurately present, uh, represent you to this world. Help us to reflect your image. 